There we go, make sure I'm on here. Have to get myself a little situated. Always have to raise this up when I first come up here. Don't wanna hurt my back again. So I'm hoping everybody's having a good morning. And as I say that, I open up with a caveat. All of us got an extra hour of sleep last night, I trust. So as I survey the congregation as I'm preaching, I do not expect to see any closed eyes <laughs> since everybody got that extra hour of sleep, which hopefully you got an extra hour of sleep. Why don't we open up in a word of prayer again? Father, we again just thank you for your goodness. Uh, we thank you for that extra hour of sleep that we just mentioned, Lord. Um, as we sit here before you today, Lord, give us ears to hear that we might do your word, that we might be obedient to the word that we have before us. And Lord, also be with your servant. Help him to speak only those things that are true and that bring you glory and honor and that will edify your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. All right, so again, a couple of other things. Now, if you would have told me about two weeks ago that it was going to be 76 degrees today, or 77 degrees, whatever it's going to be, I would have said you were lying. I would have said you have borne false testimony to me. But here we are. Some of us are in shorts and a T-shirt. Uh, most of us are in more relaxed clothes because it feels more like summer than it does fall. Now, another aside, so John doesn't say I'm bearing false testimony. If you look at your bulletin, Inside your bulletin, you can see my main idea. Now, uh, that main idea is borrowed from a thought that John had last week. And if you remember, one of the quotes that he had, he said, to bear the name of God is to live in reliable community with one another. So I added on to that, and I said, if we are to bear the name of God and live in reliable community with one another, then our testimony must be true. There is no way that we can live in reliable community with one another if we lie to one another. And we're going to get into that more and more. But I wanted to start this sermon with not looking at false testimony itself, but looking at the antithesis of what false testimony is, and that's truth. And if we're going to speak about truth, then we must speak about God, because God is truth. The Bible is replete with passages that show us that. Um, but before we get into that, notice what I'm saying. I'm saying God is truth. Not only is God the truth. Now, if you grew up anywhere near the hood back in the day, and yes, I'm bringing up a hood reference. I do apologize, but that's the type of environment that I grew up in. Back in the day, if somebody was very skilled at something, whether it be basketball, freestyling hip-hop, whatever the case may be, dancing, you would see that person perform that specific task, and in the midst of everybody else, you would say, that dude's the truth, meaning he's nice with it, he's got skill. Now, when we're saying that God is truth, we're not saying that God is nice with it or legit, although he is. We're echoing the sediments of Hebrews 6.18, which states that it is impossible 
for God to lie. It is against his character to do so. And we're also attesting to the fact that what he says is true and also his testimonies are true. Now, the long slide, I should say slides, that poor Pastor John had to type up for me because in his stubbornness, he didn't want to open up his email and cut, copy, and paste, but that's another story for another time. And now he's saying I should have used something shorter. But Burkhoff, in his systematic theology, defines the veracity or truth of God as followed. And there it is behind me. It says, when God is called the truth, this is to be understood in its most comprehensive sense. He is the truth, first of all, in a metaphysical sense. That is, in him, the idea of the Godhead is perfectly realized. He is all that he as God should be, and as such is distinguished from all so-called gods, which are called vanity and lies. So there's plenty of scriptures, especially in the Psalms, that talk about these so-called false gods and how they are not gods at all, at all and they are lies. He continues, he is also the truth in an ethical sense and as such reveals himself as he really is so that his revelation is absolutely reliable. So with God, there are no masks. Many of us will put on the so-called mask to kind of show people what they want us to be as opposed to being who we truly are. God does not wear a mask. He is who he says he is and acts as such. Finally, he is also the truth in a logical sense, and in virtue of this, he knows things as they really are and has so constituted the mind of man that the latter can know not merely the appearance, but also the reality of things. Thus, the truth of God is the foundation of all knowledge. It should be borne in mind, moreover, that these three are but different aspects of the truth, which is one in God. In view of the preceding, we may define the veracity or truth of God as that perfection of his being by virtue of which he fully answers to the idea of the Godhead, is perfectly reliable in his revelation, and sees things as they really are. It is because of this perfection that he is the source of all truth, not only in the sphere of morals and religion, but also in every field of scientific endeavor. And Scripture is emphatic in its references to God as truth. Now, this would be exhaustive, so we're only going to do a couple. And congratulations, after that long quote, none of you have appeared to have entered your happy place, and you're all awake, so you have already passed the test. So Exodus 34, 6 says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness. The word used for faithfulness can also be translated as truth. So he's a God of steadfast love and truth. In Numbers 23, 19, if you're familiar with the story of Balaam and his interaction with Balak, as Balak tries to get Balaam to curse the people of Israel, Balaam says this, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said it, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Isaiah 65, 16. So he who blesses himself in the land 
shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth because the former, former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. Moving now from the Old Testament to the New Testament, John 1.14, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In John 14.6, Jesus says this concerning himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And lastly, John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So as we saw, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God are all true. God is truth. So it goes without saying, but we'll say it anyway. If God is truth, then his word and testimony are truth, right? So everything that he says is true. Isaiah 45, verses 18 and 19, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak truth. I declare what is right. In John 17, 17, as Jesus is praying the high priestly prayer, he prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as Jesus gives testimony to himself, let's all turn to John 5. This is what he says. We're going to be starting from verse 30, and I'll give you time to get there. I, like John, like to hear the rustling of pages as opposed to uh, looking up ahead. And plus, it helps me to not cut, copy, and paste, and type less. So both are very fruitful. All right, so witnesses to Jesus, and here's what Jesus says, starting at verse 30. It says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from my people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, 
you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe in my words? As we look at Jesus, Jesus is saying that John has testified to him. As we looked at the end here, Moses has testified to him. God the Father has testified to him. And the works that he is doing all have testified to him, showing that his very works and the person of who he is is true. So if God is true, which we attest that he is, and his testimonies are true, which we affirm that they are, and our mission, as we hear week in and week out, is to bear the name of God and show the world what he is like, then guess what? Our words and testimony must be true and devoid of falsehood so that we don't misrepresent God. If we're saying our mission is to bear his name, and show this community of people here in Tom's River what God is like, and we are also attesting to the fact that God is true, then the very words that we speak and the very ways in which we interact with each other must be true as well. If not, then we are not representing God. As John will typically say on a week-in and week-out basis, at that point, if we're not going to be truthful with each other and not represent the God that we claim to serve, then we might as well pack up, go home, and enjoy 76-degree weather on our own. But if we're claiming that God is true, then we, the people who represent him, must be true as well. And therefore, we cannot bear false testimony. So what exactly is false testimonies. What is Exodus 20, verse 6, and Deuteronomy 5.20 saying when it says that you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor? Now, scholars agree that the immediate context of the ninth commandment deals with a courtroom setting where someone is being accused of a crime and or of breaking one of the stipulations of the covenant. Now, those two verses that I said earlier provide us with the wording of the commandment, but as Moses expands on the law and the rest of the text of Deuteronomy, he expands on the concept of witnesses in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 17 and also false witnesses in Deuteronomy 19. So we're going to stay close. We're going to go to the fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy, and we're going to go to Deuteronomy 17, like I just said, and we're going to look at verses 2 through 7. So I'm going to give you a little bit to get there. And this is what it says. It says, If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does not, or who does rather, what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, in transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the host of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told you when you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out of your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two 
witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your mists. So as we look at Deuteronomy 17, we observe that the role of the witness is so important that first, a sole witness is not enough for a sentence of judgment. So essentially, if we just have one witness, it's that person's word against the other person's word. We also notice that two or three witnesses are necessary. So in order to secure a conviction, we're going to need two or three witnesses. Now here's where we get a little twist as we look at the third part of Deuteronomy 17. The witnesses are the first ones to raise their hand against the guilty party and putting him or her to death. And I hope you caught that because if your testimony is going to be such, if you're going to witness against somebody that they performed or did something that requires death, then guess whose hand is going to be the first one raised against that individual? The very witness who is making the claim that this individual did this. So the witnesses not only participate passively by providing testimony, but they also participate actively by exacting the punishment. This is serious business. And just think of yourself in that type of setting where here you are in, in the midst of the court. And I know some people probably watch court TV or something to that effect, you know. Put yourself in that setting. You're testifying against that individual. The judge gives the sentence, and now he calls you up to effectuate the sentence that he just put on that person. That's how serious God looks at witnessing. And we get to see this played out as we look at John 8. Now, if you will, please turn to me there. This is a very familiar story. If you remember, John 8 deals with the woman who was caught in adultery. If you look at your Bibles, it might actually start at like 753. And here's what it says. It says, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, 
sin no more. Now, there are some questions regarding this text as to what Jesus wrote on the ground in the presence of the woman's accusers. Were they the sins of the accusers? I think in one of the manuscripts, it does mention that that is possibly what Jesus had wrote on the ground when he writes what he writes on the ground. But we simply don't know. But in any event, those who would have had to actively participate in the woman's condemnation all walked away so that there were no witnesses left to condemn her. So as we look at this text, one of the things that we notice and one of the things I need to mention off bat here is the purpose of the witnesses and the purpose of having a courtroom setting is so that justice will be effectuated. As we look at this text, we can see that the intent of the people that brought the woman before Jesus was not justice. The intent of the people was to catch Jesus in a trap. So it seems like they weren't even concerned about this woman being caught in adultery in the first place. What they were concerned with was getting rid of Jesus and hopefully catching him in his words. So not only could they condemn the woman, but they can also condemn Jesus as well. But as the story unfolds, Jesus writes what he writes on the ground, and there's no one left to condemn the woman. These, these individuals all walk away. So now going back to Deuteronomy, we're going to look at Deuteronomy 19, where we again look at the fact that in order to secure any type of sentence, there must be two or three witnesses. But here we also notice that there's punishment for giving false testimony. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 21. So again, we're reminded, it says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed, only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. As we observed in Deuteronomy 17, the purpose for giving the testimony in a case is so that evil is purged from the midst of the people. In chapter 19, we observe that the individual or individuals who provide false witness must be dealt with in the same manner as the accused, as if he or she was condemned. And we also see, just like in Deuteronomy 17, that the original person that was accused must be purged from among the people. The false witness also must be purged from among the people. Now the question we have is why? Well, the purpose of the witnesses and the lex talionis, which is your eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, etc., 
is justice, not punishment for punishment's sake. And I think that's where we go wrong when we look at the Old Testament. We, we love to look at the Old Testament as a God who exacts vengeance and all it's about is punishment. But as we look at these texts, it's about justice. God is a God of truth and a God of justice. So we, as the people of God, are not to find joy in executing punishment, which is why we need to be careful with our testimony. But we're to find joy in being a people of justice and righteousness. As we've seen thus far, God takes justice and the use of witnesses seriously. And not only do we witness this in Deuteronomy 17 and 19, which we have already read, but we also observe this fact in Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 through 20, where the people of Israel are told the following. So all you have to do is go back a page. It says, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So the purpose of the court is justice. So if the people of God allow false witnesses to run amok, there will be no justice, but instead a perversion of justice. To show partiality and to accept the bribe is to engage passively in false testimony because for convenience or political expediency or monetary gain, we are ignoring the truth so that righteousness is subverted. God is telling the people that if they want to live and inherit the land in which he is giving to them, then they will not be a people who pervert justice. They must be a people who are true and execute justice righteously so that they are able to flourish. And I think John has beat that drum continually because it's important. The purpose of the commandments is so that the people of God would be able to flourish, not so God can put his thumb on us and just give us rules to live by. He is doing this so that we as his people might flourish. Now the Bible is full of grievous examples of individuals providing false testimony. And here we're going to see one common denominator as an effect of false testimony. So for the sake of time, I'm only going to give us three examples of where we see false testimony grievously seen. Uh, the first one was brought up uh, about two weeks ago. We're looking at the circumstance between David and Uriah, and we don't need to turn there because, like I said, John explained this two weeks ago or so. So how is there false testimony before us as we look at the story of David and Uriah? So as we look at David's intent, who is the individual that got Bathsheba pregnant? That would be David. David's intent, though, is to make it look like Uriah was the one that got Bathsheba pregnant as he intends to have Uriah called back from the fighting. And then as he sends him home in hopes that 
Uriah will do what is necessary to get his wife pregnant. When that doesn't happen, what does David do? David goes to Joab and says, hey, take Uriah and place him where? Place him in where the hardest part of the fighting is going on. So David's intent is so that he will die. Well, how does he commit false testimony there? He's trying to make it look like it's the Philistines who killed Uriah, where his intent that whole time was for Uriah to die, which makes him the murderer, not the Philistines. Thus why, when Nathan goes before him, accusing him of his crimes, he is seen as the murderer, not the Philistines. A less familiar one, or one that you might not be familiar with, is in 1 Kings 21. So I encourage you to turn there. This deals with King Ahab and Naboth. Starting at verse 1, it says, Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value and money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him, for he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Well, let's see how they're going to get this vineyard here. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with a seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, you have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders, and the leaders who lived in his city did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it is written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. Soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive. He is dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. So were they in accord with Deuteronomy 17 and Deuteronomy 19? They didn't use one witness to condemn him. We're going to make sure that we get our two witnesses. 
But unfortunately, as we see here, there are two false witnesses that make up a story regarding Naboth. Of course, we're going to take a story that we know is going to get him stoned when it comes to blasphemy and all this just to secure for themselves a vineyard. And as we think of that story, we say that's pretty grievous that to steal someone's land, someone would go to that extent. But obviously the most famous and most grievous is the religious leaders and Jesus. Here we have the Holy One, the one who knows no sin, having people commit false testimony against him. Not because he owns anything, but because he is in the way of the religious leaders. He is threatening their power. So they have, obviously, people go and claim that Jesus said that in three days, he'll do what? He'll destroy that temple and have it built again. So as we look at the three examples that I just provided, and I'm sure as we look at most of the examples in the Bible, we can see that the one common effect is what? What did each one of those false testimonies produce? Death. Right? Each one of those false testimonies that these individuals provided led to the assassination of the individual who had the claim of false testimony given against them. And here's one of my driving points. So if you're not awake, wake up really quick. Get out of your happy place. So although it might not always come to pass, the intent of providing false testimony is always the assassination of the individual. I'm going to say that again. Although it might not always come to pass, the intent of providing false testimony is always the assassination of the individual. Now, that's either their person, so we're trying to assassinate them physically, or, and this is pretty much the main crux of providing false testimony, we assassinate their character. So one of those two things, when we provide testimony, it is bound to happen. That person's going to be assassinated, or their character is going to be assassinated. One scholar describes the ninth commandment as thus. To bring false witness against a fellow member of the covenant community involved lying in various forms of deception. It would be motivated by self-interest. The result, if successful, would be the false punishment of a neighbor. And even if unsuccessful, it could cast doubt by implication on the character of that neighbor. In other words, even if false witness did not lead directly to a miscarriage of justice, its effects could be tantamount to slander and defamation of character. Now, we observe the physical assassination of individuals in the Bible continually, like I said, and I can give you more examples if you like. I'm sure you want to go home soon, though. But we observe the assassination of people's character heavily in our world today, especially on social media. Now, I just explained how the primary context of this commandment is providing truth or truthful testimony in court, but this commandment goes far beyond a courtroom setting. We as the people of God are to speak the truth at all times. This fact is explicitly stated in Leviticus 19, 
11 through 12, where it says, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And as we go back to Ephesians 4, which was read earlier, we also see why we as the people of God are to be truthful as we deal with one another. It says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. As we put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness, i.e. as we show the world what God is like, we put away falsehood and speak the truth to one another because we are members of one another. Now, as I bring all this up, without realizing it, this is probably the one commandment that we violate the most. You know, most of us can like sit back and pretty much say I have no images in my house that I bow down to, at least that we can think of. Most of us, I'm hoping, have never murdered anyone. Most of us have no problem stealing, so you know, most of the ladies here can feel comfortable leaving their pocketbooks. But have we lied on somebody else? Have we committed slander against somebody else? Now just think about it, you're at the workplace, it's funny, we used to say coffee machine, now I'm just gonna say we're around the Keurig. <laughs> and a bunch of coworkers are there, and they're engaging in some talk about another coworker. How easy it, is it to slide in there and join that chatter? Or you're at the bus stop with fellow parents from the neighborhood, and of course, they're talking about the one crazy neighbor that you have, and hopefully all you have is one. Sometimes we have multiple crazy neighbors. How easy, again, is it to join in that conversation as they bring up the neighbor? Now, you more than likely don't know these people or haven't spent an extensive amount of time with those individuals, but here you are joining in the chatter that they're bringing forth. Now, if those two don't apply, this typically is the one for most of us that hits home. You know, as we click on whatever social media sites that we engage in, we typically see words against politicians, entertainers, fellow Christians, etc. And at this point, when it comes to social media, with the terms fake news and everything else, we don't know what on there is true or not true. You know, hopefully we think in our mind that we're following a trusted source and whatever we, they put on there, it is true. But here's something to consider. One, we don't know. Because typically when they bring up different circumstances, none of us were there when those circumstances happened. So what does the world of social media have to do with you and committing the act of false witnessing? <clears throat> well, just think about this. We may not be the individuals actually typing the slander or false witness and thus actively participating in the violation of this commandment. But we passively participate when we like, retweet, or share the posts that contain this information. So here we are now spreading possible disinformation to others or encouraging it by liking or retweeting and thus 
actively, or I'm sorry, passively participating in this. And as we now look at these social media sites, we can definitely say, and I can mention a couple of names if we like, we can go with Kanye recently, and whatever his quotes were, we can go with Kyrie Irving, we can go with Donald Trump, we can go with Joe Biden, we can just name a few people and see that the intent of all these posts are the assassination of someone's character. Was it about a year ago we had the whole situation with Joe Rogan? Joe Rogan said something obviously against uh, getting vaccinated at that time, and we're not here to concentrate on anybody's stance on vaccination or non-vaccination, but because he said what he said, we now have to come up with something because we now need to get rid of Joe Rogan because he has one of the biggest podcasts that are out there and we don't want his information going out to a whole array of people. So that's the famous character in hopes to get rid of him. That is unfortunately how social media is being used today. So my encouragement to you is be mindful of what you engage in and be careful because you might there be spreading false testimony passively without even knowing it. So what are the effects of bearing false witness? And I didn't realize I went this long, so I'm going to be kind of quick. I kind of miswrote this. There are no positive effects of bearing false witness, if it says that in your, uh, in your bulletin. But if we avoid bearing false witness, let's look at some positives that will come from that. Justice will prevail. I said earlier, God is a God of justice. We too, as the people of God, should be a people of justice. We should want justice to prevail throughout the land. Secondly, we will live in unity. We saw in Ephesians 4 how it talked about we're members of one another. We cannot be members of one another if we can't trust each other's speech. That's going to cause division, not unity. Again, from Ephesians 4, we build each other up. Our true talk, our encouragement to one another, builds each other up. And lastly, we get to represent God in the way that we should. We get to show that God is true because we as the people of God are engaging in truthful speech. If we bear false witness... We give the devil a foothold in our church because we know, as James tells us, how the tongue works and just how it can control the ship and cause fire to spread if we are false among each other in this church and are providing slander against each other that will spread like wildfire. We will not have unity, so we will lack unity as the people of God. Now, some people, as you looked at Ephesians, put these clauses together as we look at not being truthful in our speech and say that is what actually grieves the Spirit. So the way our speech is, if we're not careful with our speech, we have the potential of grieving the Holy Spirit. We obviously misrepresent God and we become a people who are bitter, angry, wrathful, argumentative, and backbiting, and I know I just described most of social media right there as I did that, who lack compassion and forgiveness. So my encouragement to all of us is to be a people who speak the truth. Now, I'm gonna encourage you not to be like me, 
And what I mean by that is I sometimes have the tendency of being brutally honest. So you do not have to be brutally honest because those type of words also can hurt others. But we should be the type of people who can come to, uh, in the midst of one another and speak the truth in love. At the end of the day, that's what this is all about. We should be able to come in the presence of one another in love and speak the truth that we all might be edified and that God may be glorified. So I end with that, and why don't we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we glorify you this day because you are truth. And Lord, as your people, you have called us to be true with one another, that we might glorify your name and that we might represent you well. Lord, help us to just be mindful of our speech. Help us to be mindful of what we engage and put into our minds and our hearts on a daily basis. And uh, Lord, we repent for the times that we did engage in slander or lying or giving false testimony against our neighbor. Um, we pray that in those times that there could be reconciliation, um, that we could again have unity and show the world what you are like. We ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So something interesting I found before we go to the table. I'm just going to throw a slight curveball. And I hope I didn't lose John's little format that he has here. Here it is. As a uh, police officer and former infantryman, I always believe in keeping stuff simple because I am not the brightest individual. So with that said, I believe it was Peter Leithart <clears throat> when talking about witnesses was talking about how different symbols in the Old Testament were used as witnesses. So one of the things that was brought up was if you look at the story of uh, Jacob and Laban, Obviously, we see that there's a lot of deceitfulness. Jacob takes off and leaves. Laban catches up to him. They don't want him any more infighting, so they set up stones as a symbol or as a witness to show that there will be peace amongst them. So this is what he writes in reference to that. He says, The reason God's people no longer need such objects is that the apostles themselves brought the Lord's witness in the power of the Holy Spirit. The concrete signs of God's faithfulness to his promise are the sacraments he instigated. We now have baptism and the Lord's Supper as memorials to God's faithfulness to his covenant. And that's again bringing us back to that theme of God is true. In this too, we see the transforming work of Christ. The tabernacle of testimony is not replicated in a cathedral, but it is seen in the bread of the Lord's Supper and the cup of the new covenant in Christ's blood. The mystery of Christ's presence in communion shows this transforming of the witness symbols of the Old Testament. The elements are indeed witnesses to his atoning death and risen life. They are not mere memorials, however, for Christ is spiritually present. In the Eucharist, the Lord Jesus brings again the assurance of his love. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirits as we sit together at the Lord's table. So may we as the people of God, as we come to the table this morning, be thankful for the witnesses of God's love that he has given us.